أعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وصلى الله تبارك وتعالى وسلم على سيدنا محمد سيدنا وسندنا وحبيبنا وشفيعنا ومولانا صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وأصحابه وأزواجه وذرياته وأهل بيته ومن تبعهم بإحسان إلى يوم الدين وبعد We continue with our reading uh, from Ibn Rajab Hanbali's Warathatul Anbiya, a commentary on the hadith of Abu Darda anhu and the virtues of seeking knowledge in the subsections subsection regarding the paths leading to knowledge. Ibn Rajab says, Rahimahullah tabarak wa ta'ala, uh, in, uh, transduced into uh, English by the able uh, Imam Zaid. Allah Ta'ala protect him and give him long life. There is no path to experiential knowledge of Allah leading you to his pleasure and his nearness in the hereafter except for through the beneficial knowledge which Allah sent down to his messengers and revealed in his scriptures. So this is an important point uh, and this is that our path is an usuli path which is the usul of which are laid down by wahi not by tajriba. The, the, The principles of which are laid down by Revelation, not by experience. The principles of which are laid down by revelation, not by experience. There's nobody who's so smart or so uh, experienced or been around the block enough times that somehow what they have to say is going to you know, add or make perfect uh, the thing that was already said by revelation. Rather, the things that were said by revelation as is the point of revelation, are those things that you can't figure out on your own through your smartness or through your experience. Rather, the dumbest of people, if they adopt it as their own path correctly, uh, will be successful. And the smartest of people, if they turn their back on this path, uh, they won't have a, a, a clear way of making it. There is no path to experiential knowledge of Allah leading to his pleasure and his nearness except for through the beneficial knowledge which Allah sent down to his messengers and revealed in his scriptures. This knowledge guides to the right path. With it, clear guidance is sought out from the darkness, ignorance, ambiguity, and doubt. Allah has referred to his book as a light with which one is guided through darkness. There has come to you from Allah a light and a clear book. With it, Allah guides those who pursue his pleasure to paths of peace and he brings them out of darkness into light. The Prophet ﷺ put forth a parable between the possessors of knowledge and the stars that guide people through the darkness. Imam Ahmad ta'ala, meaning Imam Ahmad bin Hanbal, relates from Anas anhu that the Prophet ﷺ said, The similitude of the ulama, the people of knowledge on the earth, is like that of the stars in the sky, by which people are guided through the darkness of the land and sea. If the stars were extinguished, even the guides might stray. The metaphor is penetrating, for the path to understanding Allah's oneness, experiential knowledge of Allah, His divine rulings, and His uh, rewards and punishment are not attained through empirical knowledge, meaning they're not attained by through trial and error and by observation. He has made this clear in his book and on the tongue of his messenger, sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The scholars are the guides through the darkness of ignorance, ambiguity, and deviation. 
When these guides are lost, the travelers go astray. So this has to do with an approach to the Sharia, which is what, which is that those tenets that are set out by Wahi, by revelation, they aren't subject uh, to the same inquiry and questioning that, uh, you know, that that empirical knowledge or even rational knowledge may be subject to. And so, uh, you know, you have, uh, I guess, a different approach to these principles. And the issue is this. This doesn't mean that just because a alim says something or because it's in a fiqh book or because it's in a book that's written in Arabic with like, you know, multiple volumes with a fancy title written, you know, uh, dashingly across uh, the, 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 the spine of all of those volumes that it's beyond reproach or beyond question. But the idea is that those things that come through Revelation... We may have to admit from time to time that we don't understand exactly what they mean, but whatever they do mean is beyond question and beyond reproach. And if you want to be a Muslim, you kind of have to accept that because we believe in a rationally cogent universe and we believe in the deen being rationally cogent. Unlike, unlike the sophist traditions of, of the idol worshippers, uh, which are essentially basically philosophically as a religion, they're philosophically... Uh, sophisticated forms of atheism they're philosophically sophisticated uh, forms of sophistry which is what you have religions major world religions which will say things like there's no such thing as absolute truth or absolute truth is unknowable or uh, uh, you know each one of you has his own absolute truth you live in your own truth i live my truth you live your truth well look if each of you lives your own absolute truth, then there's no such thing as absolute truth at all. This is a contradiction in terms. And if you, each of you has their own truth, then there's no such thing as, as the truth. It's just a form of sophistry. What is sophistry? In the old days, they used to have those people who were trained in philosophy and in analyzing arguments and in wordsmithy. They used to hang out in, in whatever, Athens or whatever. And people would hire them in order to do their PR for them or in order to plead cases on their behalf and word them in the most convincing way possible, even if they're failing cases or they're on behalf of the guilty. And so the people who occupy the niche of sophists nowadays mostly are, are attorneys. And it's interesting that attorneys and lawyers are the ones who end up usually becoming senators and congresspeople and presidents. Um, but you know, this is not, we don't have a, we don't have that, that tradition of sophistry where everything, you know, you know, can you say anyone's like really wrong? Yeah, you can, you know, that's our, that's our tradition. And if you cannot accept that, if that, that one linchpin point cannot be accepted by a person, then uh, Islam is not going to make a whole lot of sense to you. And further than that, Islam claims to be right. So if you want to have any meaningful relation with Islam, you have to ascertain is this claim that Islam making correct or not. One thing is the claim that there is such an absolute truth. The second claim is that Islam is that absolute truth. Until you can come to peace with these two issues, the rest of wahi, the rest of revelation is not going to, you know, be digestible to you. Because look, look, you crack the 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 uh, Quran open and you read Surah Al-Fatiha, Ihdina Siratul Mustaqim, guide us to the straight path. Okay, and then like a couple of verses down uh, in the next page, um, and it really should be the same page, but just because usually the first two pages of the Mus'haf are written in a very highly stylized format, uh, a very uh, 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 adorned and embellished with aesthetic uh, 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 embellishments and uh, adornments. That was a really awkward sentence. It's been a long fast for all of us. So 
Otherwise, they should be on the same page. So just a couple of verses down, what does Allah Ta'ala say? He asked for hidayah in one verse and a couple of verses down, which nobody knows what it means. That's the book in which there's no doubt. Right after saying something that you know and I know that none of us know what it means. This is the guidance that you asked for for the, for, for the people who fear Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Ta'ala. And uh, uh, the sifa of them, the first sifa of the believers, the first attribute of the believers that's mentioned is that they're the ones who believe in something that's unseen so the, the issue is this is if you cannot make peace with the quran being right and the quran bringing the the uh, uh you know bringing that uh that absolute truth that the absolute truth exists first of all and that the quran is the thing that's bringing it the, the whole islam thing is not going to work out for you and uh this is the fitna that people have thrown themselves in because they don't bother thinking about these things. We definitely don't bother teaching them or learning them. Um, this is one of the reasons that I decided to spend a, a you know, uh, a significant portion of my time teaching aqidah is because these simple things that used to, I guess, be understood by people and they used to be part of our scholastic tradition back in the days when the scholars were trained properly rather than going to a kafir and saying like, here, give me a piece of paper saying I know about Islam. Where the, back in the days when the scholars were trained po- properly and the lay people were people uh, who accepted the deen as being true um, through uh, their simple and straightforward nature and through their love of piety rather than their love of the material world. Between those two uh, you know, key ingredients, you know, people used to not like question these things and like resist them as much. Whereas nowadays, both of those ingredients are gone and people people are talking a big game about the Muslims need to do this and the Muslim community needs to do that and the Muslim Ummah needs to do that and Saudi Arabia needs to do this and Pakistan needs to do that and Malaysia needs to do this and Turkey needs to do that and the Arabs need to do this and the Iranians need to do that. And they're, they're really deeply involved in like having opinions on all sorts of things. But this one first thing that you have to do in order to benefit from the Quran itself, right? The Quran is transcendent above sectarian bickering. You know, everyone can agree whether you're Shia, Sunni, Wahhabi, Sufi, Irhabi, Kababi, Fulan ibn Quran uh, 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 in the Bustan. It doesn't matter. Like, you know, everybody, at least the, even the Ismailis and the Bataniya will at least pay some sort of lip service to the Quran. They'll say, well, yeah, you guys don't understand the true inner secret meaning of it and whatever. But yeah, there is the Quran is the absolute truth in whatever abstract way. Everybody will accept the Quran. You're not even you're not even prepared to read the first like like whatever 10 ayahs of the Quran. Uh, if you can't accept this thing. And how important is that? Someone's like, well, I'm having a crisis of faith. Many of the ulama say, don't bring this stuff in public because people have a crisis of faith. Dude, may- maybe some people need to have a crisis of faith. You know, Akhdari, uh, which is the first, we, you know, the first matan uh, in, 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 in Islamic learning that children used to be taught in the, in the Maghrib al-Arabi, in the Maliki lands. Uh, um, the first sentence of the matan of Akhdari is what? The first thing, the first thing, the first thing that is a an obligation on the person who has reached the, the state of moral responsibility, meaning that they're an adult, they've hit bulugh, they, they you know they've they've hit puberty, and they're sane. Is what? Is that they have to correct their iman, they have to correct their faith in Allah Ta'ala. 
And out of all of these things, you know, the idea is that like La ilaha illallah means what? That there's no truth except for the absolute truth. We have to believe in absolute truth, you know, in order for, for to make that affirmation. You know, you have to believe in the concept that it exists, and then afterward you have to negate everything else other than it. That's the whole, the whole, uh, 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 you know, that's the whole sweetness of La ilaha illallah. You know, is that there's one Allah and there's no nothing is Allah other than that Allah. You know, there's no other ilah other than that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in every one of its every one of his asma and sifat jalla wa ala. Uh, and so maybe people need to have a little, you know, a little crisis of faith so that they can realize, you know, am I wasting my time and wasting other people's time with this whole Islam thing? Or is this really like where it's at? Uh, I know I know what makes sense to me and I know what I've cast my lot in with. And, you know, someone might say, well, Hamza's crazy. So like, you know, what... You know, do you sure you want to join that group? Yeah, I agree with you. If it was just me, then you'd probably be best advised to move along. But when you have, you know, Shatibi and Ghazali and like, you know, Imam al-Haramain and like Ahmed Zarruq and, you know, like you have all of these people there that have said all of these things in, you know, with great clarity, you know, um, then maybe there is something, there is something there to be uh, looked at that warrants, you know, being taken seriously. And it's very funny because people will hold up into esteem, you know, Sayyidina Bilal radiallahu anhu or Sayyidina Maryam alayhi salam or the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Why? Because they feel intellectually unthreatened by them. Because they've kind of abstracted them into like a bunny rabbit type niche in their mind and in their heart. Where this person is just like a grandfather type figure that gives me a hug when I feel down. But their teachings don't impinge upon my lifestyle or don't cause me to have to change anything. Uh, about who I am myself, I can just think about them like, you know, like, you know, I can just think about them uh, uh, like some sort of like, you know, uh, like uh, some sort of magic bonus round character uh, in a video game and uh, 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 then go back to my normal life unchanged, unexamined. But then when you bring up Ghazali, people get upset. When you bring up the Fuqaha, you pick, bring up Malik and Abu Hanifa, they say, these are the hair-splitting theologians that were, you know, uh, arguing with each other about, you know, some abstruse uh, issues of fiqh when the Mongols destroyed the Ummah. We don't need these people anymore. Actually, no, they're the ones who understood the Wahi the best, and they're the ones who expounded it the best, and they're the ones who any of us know anything about the Wahi because of them, because of their students, and because of the tradition that they had, that the generations before them, they understood what they said the best, and the generations after them all bore witness to that. Um, so you got to like kind of figure out what you think about those things. Why does this mean anything? This means something, why? Because it means then thereafter, the mind you're going to bring, the mindset you're going to bring to these sacred sciences has to be different than the mindset that you bring to chemistry. It has to be different than the mindset that you bring to physics, to medicine, to astronomy, to engineering. Why? Because those are things, if you take things as, you know, divine revelation, then you are going to stint your growth. You're going to, uh, you're going to, uh, you know, be held back from being able to understand things because you need to have your mind flexible and nimble in order to be able to like understand what's going on, what might be going on, what's not going on, etc., etc. Uh, and you're, you're going to have to try to figure out those, use those pieces of knowledge that you know in order to figure out those things that you don't know. You're going to have to question other, you know, like question what's been going on before. If it's wrong, then you'll correct it. And if it's right, then at least you'll understand it better. Whereas with Wahi, um, you know, there's no way to empirically or rationally verify that Maghrib is supposed to be three rakahs. There's no way of, you know, empirically or rationally verifying that like 
uh, a nisab of this amount below it, a person shouldn't pay zakat, and above it, a person must pay zakat. Or that there's no way of empirically verifying that the adhan has to be called five times a day uh, and not four or not six. Um, uh, otherwise, you know, this hukum will happen on a city or that hukum will happen on a city. These things are known through wahi. They're known through what? They're known through revelation. And it's really interesting how people have tried to impinge on the inviolability of wahi through a number of weird, uh, uh, you know, weird types of uh, weird types of approaches to the sacred law. So you see everybody talking about maqasid, 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 and maqasid is a you know the maqasid sharia is a very legitimate um, you know uh, concept in understanding the sharia. Uh, the the first uh, person who talked about it, uh, at least with this particular nomenclature, uh, is Shatibi. And if you look at Shatibi's fatawa, I mean, he's about as orthodox as it gets. But why is it that those people who talk about maqasid nowadays are bandying the word about in, in order to basically transmute the inherited sharia? Uh, the Sheikh Samir Nas, who uh, taught the Hidayah and the Ma'had Fath al-Islami in Damascus, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala opened it up again on um, Qarib. He said that, he said that, uh, uh, he said that the... the, the the summary of where people went wrong with their discussion about maqasid nowadays is that Shatabi was talking about the maqasid of sharia, meaning you need to understand what Allah's maqasid is from you. What does Allah want from you? Whereas nowadays people are using the maqasid to show what they want from, from the sharia uh, rather than what Allah wants from you through the sharia. And, uh, uh, you know, that's so you use maqasid khalas that this, you know, the, the, the sharia is there to preserve life. And going to the masjid is going to lead to not making as much money. And uh, that's going to mean you can't buy medicine. And so you're putting your life in danger. So don't go to the masjid. Uh, you know, this type of, uh, you know, uh, this type of convoluted, uh, convoluted uh, reasoning, if it seems uh, laughable to you, um, there are things far more laughable than that, that people are applying to the sharia and the foundational misunderstanding or the foundational uh, stumbling block in that type of reasoning is what? Is that you're there to serve Allah Ta'ala, you're there to worship Allah Ta'ala, He shows you how you're supposed to do that. And the point is that in the pursuit of fulfilling that goal or fulfilling that uh, that that commandment Allah has given you, part of your worshiping Allah Ta'ala is not to kill yourself. So if there's like a if there's like a fire breathing dragon between you and the masjid and he's gonna burn you alive, then okay, pray your salat at home. But this doesn't mean that you know you know anything that that's going to harm your life in any way and like you know cut your uh, uh, you know cut your uh, uh, your your lifespan by days or minutes or seconds. Or through possibility, you know, there's a 60% chance or a 50% chance or a 40% chance that all of those things are the same. They're not all the same. And the, the, the issue is this, is that this idea that I know better than you because I have tajriba in this field or in that field or in the other field. Yes, that means that you know the field that you're talking about, but it doesn't necessarily mean anything with regards to the ulum of the deen. And so nowadays, this thing that I hear uh, people saying, uh, you know, with regards to all oh, these mullahs are going to kill us all and they're going to this and they're going to that. Yes, you can accuse them of not knowing the scope of 
of, of, of the waba or how it, it's transmitted or all of these other things. But there may be some of them that know those things that you that you feel like they don't know and they still make a decision different than yours. At that point, you have to look at then, you have to look at the sharia. Is it really true that, you know, the sharia is going to, uh, uh, you know, um, command or demand a person to come to the masjid in such a condition or in, not in such a condition? Because there are certain situations in which the sharia asks you to put your life in risk. There are certain situations in which the sharia asks you to put yourself in harm's way. In order to fulfill some ibadat from the ibadat, some ibadat from the ibadat, or in order to fulfill some political or economic or social uh, 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 objective from the economic, political, or social objectives of the deen, and if you don't know what the lines are with regards to those things uh, that are known only not through going to medical school or not through being an infectious disease ex- expert, but through reading the books of the Sharia, you don't know. Why? Because this knowledge is not something that a person will understand through uh, uh, through uh, what Imam Zaid translates as what as empirical knowledge. Rather, they are known through divine revelation. He has made this clear in his book and on the tongue of his messenger, sallallahu alaihi wasallam. The scholars are the guides through the darkness of ignorance, ambiguity, and deviation. When these guides are lost, as Ibn Rajab is saying, when these guides are lost, the travelers go astray. The scholars have been likened to the stars, which provide three benefits. They guide people through the darkness, they adorn the sky, and they are the missiles that repel the satans that ascend uh, uh, the heavens, endeavoring to intercept Allah's commands to the angels. The scholars possess these three characteristics. They guide through the darkness, they adorn the earth, and they are the missiles that repel uh, the satans who mix truth with falsehood, and introduce heretical innovations in religion. Such innovations uh, are introduced by people following their own whims. So the stars, they do what? The stars provide three benefits, he says. The star stars. They guide the people through the darkness. The people down here can look up at the stars. They can know what the season is. They can know what the time of night is. And they can know what the the directions are um, by looking up at the stars at night. Uh, secondly, they adorn the sky. They make the sky beautiful. And the third is what? Is that they are the missiles that repel the Satans that uh, ascend to the heavens. Which is something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says in, in his book. That the, uh, uh, the, 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 the shuhub, the, the, the burning stars, the meteorites. Um, that when uh, the shayateen uh, 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 try to ascend, that those are, are, are sent down upon them and they... Uh, hit them from ascending to the higher realm and communing with the higher realm in order to use the knowledge from the higher realm in order to in order to uh, um, in order to misguide people or in order to get an advantage an unfair advantage uh, over uh, over the righteous people of the earth and this third point it's fine you know some smarty pants is going to say well like this is like see the quran is wrong cuz you know meteorite is you know something that happens when like a, a, a meteorite is you know like a fragment of something you know a meteor from this from from like space dust or whatever that comes into the atmosphere and then turns into a meteorite and burns up you know on its way down and like you know we don't see any satans or jinns or demons or whatever okay fine uh, you know if you want to go at it uh, from that perspective then what will i say I'll say that the Satans and the jinns and demons are unseen anyway. 
So how are you going to know? As a point of aqidah, the word jinn itself means something that's, uh, the you know, the, from the root word jannah means to be obscure, to be unseeable. So we ourselves say that you're never going to be able to prove this right or wrong. It's just something that's there from wahi. Uh, so what is it? You're trying to use your empirical knowledge in order to verify or to, uh, 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 in order to prove wrong what's there in the wahi. We told you from the beginning that, you know, these are things that are from the unseen realm. You know, what is the shihab thaqib Allah Ta'ala talks about in, in his book? Is it literally the meteorites or is it something else? You don't know. And the point is, is Allah is informing us about something. It's not The point is not like that, that some sort of like divine astronomy book or whatever. Uh, otherwise, instead of reading the Quran for every night for taraweeh, you know, we should go read an astronomy textbook, you know, in, 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 in uh, 29 or 30 nights and make khatam of it and then make dua and cry or whatever. That's, you know, the point is something different. So he's mentioning that these are the three usages of the stars that are mentioned all three of them are mentioned in the quran that from by the stars people seek guidance and we know that that's true uh, and we know that they're they're beautiful and then the third is allah ta'ala said that we uh, made these shooting stars as a, something that repels the shayateen somehow in the ghayb it prevents them from accessing the knowledge of the higher realm to get an unfair advantage over the people of the earth. So don't let your mind get distracted by uh, something which is very fantastic and very interesting on the surface, but not relevant to the deeper point, neither in the Quran nor in uh, uh, you know nor in our reading right now. In the Quran, it's there to give assurance to the Prophet wasallam that you have divine help from the higher realm. That much is that much is clear. Why? Because you're not going to have 1,400 years of civilization without some help from 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 the higher realm. And here Ibn Rajab is mentioning it. Why? To uh, make an analogy, because the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam said that the that that the 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 scholars are have been likened to the uh, to the stars, right? He says related Ahmed Imam Ahmed relates from Anas that the Prophet said the similitude of the scholars on the earth is that of the stars in the sky by which people are guided through darkness uh, of land and sea. If the stars are extinguished, even the guides might stray. So he says that the religious scholars have been likened to the stars which provide three benefits. They guide the people through the darkness, they adorn the sky, and they're the missiles that repel the Satans who ascended the heavens, endeavoring to intercept Allah's commands to the angels. The religious scholars, now we're not talking about stars anymore, now we're talking about the ulama. The scholars possess these characteristics as well. You see, uh, uh, meta, uh, an analogy uh, uh, to, to those characteristics. You know, those characteristics are literally there in the stars and they're metaphorically there in the ulama. They guide through the darkness of ignorance. Right? Someone calls me and, you know, says, well, Shaykh, you know, my mother's yelling at me and says I shouldn't smoke weed and I'm like, you know, you're trying to mess up my fun. I'm like, look, the weed is not good for you. It's haram. You're going to go to Jahannam. And it's also going to like, you know, screw up your brain and kill your brain cells. And like your mother has been go so good to you. And, uh, uh, you know, and you, des you she deserves that you respect her and you owe it to her to listen to her. And she only wants what's best for you anyway. And uh, et cetera, et cetera. Right. Whereas if you go to if you go to somebody who's like a secular trained, whatever, they'll say, well, weed is now de decriminalized. And your mother is just a source of uh, stress for you anyway. And she's just, uh, 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 you know, there to like make you feel guilt. So stop, stop listening to her and like just live your life separately. 
which probably will be helpful to you uh, in some limited sense in this world. But in Akhirah, it's going to be a complete catastrophe. And it's questionable whether even in this world, holistically, it's going to help or not. Right. So the ulama, they at least they can tell, OK, it's fine. You know, don't this is this is a big thing. You know, people like, you know, like mental health, Muslim mental health. Alhamdulillah, by and large, it's a good thing that Muslim mental health has um, a, a, a topic that is getting more attention uh, as time goes by. Uh, and it should get more attention and we should have more uh, professional Muslim mental health uh, providers. But even then, the mental health providers that are trained in providing mental health, they have to come to the ulama in order to, to, to calibrate their, their, uh, uh, you know, their, their treatments uh, in order to be uh, uh, harmonious with the deen. Otherwise, if you're just going to say Muslim mental health, which just means what? I'm going to do whatever I want. I'm going to do what everyone else is doing in the field. But just say Assalamu Alaikum and Bismillah in the beginning and, you know, shut my office for Eid and for Jummah. Uh, that's not really, that's not really all that helpful. So the ulama, they guide through the darkness of ignorance. They adorn the earth. Meaning what? Is that when you have a society based on the values that are preserved and that are uh, dispensed by the ulama, you have a, a, a society that's worth living in. And they're the missiles that repel the Satans who mix truth with falsehood, introduce heretical, and introduce heretical innovation in, in, in religion. Such innovations are introduced by people who are following their own whims. That there are the sophists of this world who are going to take, you know, Muslim uh, uh, and Islamic and, and, and Quranic and, and, you know, Sunnah-based values, and they're going to twist them in order to run their own shops and in order to make their own political candidacies viable and in order to, you know, misappropriate misappropriate the symbols and images of deen like the caliphate or like the Quran or like Medina or like, you know, these things that the Muslims love for the sake of Allah in order to get their own political, economic or social uh, 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 gains that they wish to out of the deen and they're going to leave people in the garbage in their wake. They're going to trash people's deen in their wake. And so the ulama of haq are there to do what? Yanfuna anhu. Tahrifu al-ghalin wa intihal al-mubtilin. That they're there to negate this uh, uh, spurious misappropriation of the people of batil uh, from, from, from religion. Ibn Rajab continues, So as long as knowledge remains, people will be guided. But knowledge will remain as long as the scholars remain. When the scholars dwindle in number, people fall into error. The Prophet ﷺ relates this meaning in a sound hadith. Allah does not withdraw knowledge by extracting it from the hearts of men. Rather, He takes away scholars. When no scholar remains, people uh, take the ignorant as their leaders, and these ignorant ones are questioned and give religious verdicts without knowledge. They are astray and they lead others astray. And this is a hadith, usually people will quote it when like you know, someone, a person of knowledge dies but it's you know worth pondering over more than just like a funerary note for some mullah. Which is what? Allah doesn't withdraw knowledge by extracting it from the hearts. Rather, the scholars are, the, are, are the, the wells from which the water of knowledge is drawn. If the scholars go away, then there's no more knowledge anymore. Ignorance is going to prevail. And if we don't have a, a machinery and a pipeline to train these people and to uh, replenish the ones that, are, that, that leave when their uh, life expectancy expires, then we're going to lose the knowledge. And furthermore, if we have people who 
are reflexively trained to curse those people who keep the knowledge, right? Imagine there's a well and, uh, you know, like a dog falls into the well, right? This is the famous story of Tony. Thank you to Red Suleiman uh, from Karachi uh, who uh, introduced me to this wonderful teaching story uh, that there was, uh, you know, many of you probably have heard the story of Tony. If not, it's worth recounting again that uh, there was a village somewhere and, uh, uh, you know, when the villagers woke up to pray Fajr, they, they, you know, the whole village has one well that they make wudu from, they wash their clothes from, they drink from, they cook from, they clean from. So when they put the bucket into the well to get the water out for the wudu of Fajr, they found the water is putrid, smells horrible. And uh, it was unusable. And so when they looked inside with their torches or whatever, they saw there's a dead dog, the carcass of which is bloated inside the well. So they go to the village Molvi, to the village scholar, and they say, hey, you know, you're a smart guy. You went to Baghdad and, you know, became a big mullah. Uh, you, you went to Bukhara and Samarkand and learned we're all illiterate villagers. You tell us, what do we do now? He says, well, he cracked open his Mukhtasar Quduri. He said, well, take a hundred buckets of water out and the water should be good then afterward. So he took a hundred buckets of water out, Right. And uh, they said, though, the, the well is still, the water is still putrid. What should we do? He said, take another hundred buckets of water out. We took another hundred buckets of water out. They said, the water is still putrid. What should we do? He said, take another hundred buckets of water out. So they took another hundred buckets of water out. The water is still putrid. Molana, what do we do? He says, I have a question. Have you guys taken the dog out yet? They said, no, of course not. He said, how about this? Take the dog out, then take out a hundred buckets of water out. And so they took out the dog. And then they took out a hundred buckets of water, and sure enough, the uh, the water of the well was sweet again. And so that dog was named Tony. At any rate, this important story of Tony is very important. Why? Because uh, in the context of what we're talking about right now, people see scholars. Imagine if the scholar is like the well from which the water of knowledge is drawn. They see they see a scholar. You know, Tony tripped and fell into the into the well. They see a scholar. There's some problem with him. And so then they're like, what? All the scholars are wrong. It's like seeing a well in which like a dog fell in the carcass bloated. And it's the only well in the, in the village. So they're like, you know what? Wells are horrible. We're not going to use wells anymore. Okay, go all of you die of thirst. This is one of the dumbest things I've ever heard. It doesn't mean that the water is bad or that wells are bad. Maybe you just need to take Tony out of the well and everything will be right again. You know, and it, this is why it's a fitna. Sometimes the ulama comment about things that they really need not comment about. And I'm not talking about people like Ghazali and Imam al-Haram. Usually they're, they're, you know, that type of muhaqqiq scholar is very good at not commenting about things that they don't know about. But you know, human beings are human beings. And even those people weren't divinely protected from error. And a person may pass a comment about something that they don't know about. Part of your, your acumen as a scholar, as a student of knowledge, is to be able to discern what a person is an expert at and what they're not expert at. And to take the things that they say that are from their expertise and reliable and to discard the rest of them. So the Hidayah, for example, is master book of Hanafi fiqh. It misreports Imam Malik's position fairly frequently. And so we don't pick up the Hidayah and throw it in the garbage. I remember when I would mention this to, you know, some of the fellow students, you know, from the far-flung areas uh, of the country. And they would say, Ah, tum kya hai? Ye to sahib Hidayah hai. Ye to, ye to bade ulama mein se hai. Tum kono? I said, what are you saying that, you know, the sahib al-Hidayah doesn't know? He's a great alim. Uh, how dare you uh, mention, you know, something bad about him? I said, no, I'm not saying bad about him. When he reports something in Hanafi fiqh, he's a master. 
if he reports something about a madhab he doesn't know about, that should be excused. It doesn't mean that, you know, his things that he's saying about Hanafi fiqh are wrong. As a scholar, you can discern those things. You know, you can understand the Darqutni, when he says something about Abu Hanifa, you can take it with a grain of salt. You know, it doesn't mean that every hadith that he's narrating, you know, is a, a, a bad hadith, you know. When, uh, you know, I don't know, Fakhruddin Razi says something about like bees making honey inside of their legs or whatever. It doesn't mean that he doesn't understand Ash'ari Kalam. It just means maybe he's not like super expert on like the way bees and honey works, right? The problem is the awam, they see someone makes a mistake and says something that they probably admittedly shouldn't have said because it's outside of the pale of their expertise. And what do they say? Oh, this person, everything he says is all bakwas, it's all nonsense. And uh, what is it? It's like seeing a well in which Tony's uh, uh, deceased body is bloated and, 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 and rotting. And saying, because of this, we don't need wells anymore. Because we tried this well thing and wells just don't work. Okay, that well, maybe the bloat in it is so bad that that well will never work anymore. What does that mean? That all the other wells, you're not going to take water from them ever again? This is a type of overreaction. And it's... There, look, there are a set of people who have a vested interest in this type of overreaction. Uh, you know, and those are the people who have a vested interest in Islam being supplanted as, you know, the dominant paradigm by which the world functions. Um, and so you're going to what? Replace the ulama with what? Modernism? With Neil deGrasse Tyson? And what are you going to replace the, the, the ulama with what? With, with Carl Sagan? You're going to replace the ulama with what? Richard Dawkins? And Sam Harris and like Bill Maher, come on, these people are. I mean, they literally, they're like their entire aqidah is based on like white supremacy or based on like you know, like just these kind of like philosophical half baked. They're not even philosophically trained people anyway. These half baked assertions, many of which just have to do with their own smugness um, and their their smugness with their super expertise and like very small narrow bands of learning and complete like stark ignorance and anything else other than them. They don't even claim to have a, a, a you know a philosophical education that embraces learning or knowledge in in any holistic sense. Uh, but just like their empirical expertise with regards to like, I don't know, like the way like bodies in the sky work. Uh, that's, you know, to be very uh, frank with you, it's uh, fine. You have a problem with the ulama. Your problem may or may not be legitimate. It may be illegitimate. I give, I give, I, I'll, you know, I'll give you, I'll throw that at least hypothetical bone. But what are you going to replace it with these uh, train wreck type of people? Um, that doesn't make any sense. And so when someone says, yeah, all these ulama are killing everybody and they're going to ruin, and they're the ones who ruined Islam and they this, that, and the So tell me, what's your ni'mal badal? What is your uh, you know, thing you're going to replace them with? And uh, really upon uh, a fair and objective, uh, 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 you know, second glance, you have to see that, you know, even if there is some problem in certain things, it's a juzi problem. It's a particular problem. It's not a universal problem that pervades the system of knowledge. Uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the tawfiq to what? Allah ta'ala give us the tawfiq to A, not say, مَا lana bihi ilmun, not talk about those things that we don't have knowledge uh, of. And it's hard. It's hard for an ego, egotistical person like myself to shut up and say, I don't know. But once you get used to it, uh, there's a type of sweetness in it, you know. Uh, 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 and by saying, I don't know, especially when a scholar does so, or someone who at least the, uh, the poem perceives to be a scholar, whether or not that's true. Um, you know, one of the benefits is by saying, I don't know, uh, that person then inoculates themselves and others from fitna uh, in case they're wrong. 
uh, whether it's about the deen or whether it's about any sort of secular science or whatever. But then from the other side, we also have to see like what, you know, uh, nobody is perfect except for the, the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And because a man makes one mistake, it doesn't mean that everything else they say is wrong as well. Just like if a man says 99 out of 100 things that are right and one thing wrong, the 99 things that are right doesn't make the one thing wrong right also by like the law of like preponderance or whatever. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives discernment. وَصَلَّى اللَّهُ تَبَارَكُ وَتَعَالَى وَسَلَّمَ عَلَى سَيِّدِنَا مُحَمَّدٍ وَعَلَى آلِهِ وَصَحْبِهِ أَجْمَع